Welcome to Talking Confidence with me, Holly Kaplan. Having confidence in the workplace is essential for progress, fulfillment, and yes, survival. The issue is that confidence doesn't always come easy and is impacted and influenced along the way. Well, as a confidence coach, I know the key to finding and keeping your confidence is to recognize how professional situations have affected how you think of yourself. In this podcast together, we will examine exactly what impacts women's confidence in the workplace. We're going to get raw in these episodes. We are going to peel back the layers of social interactions, company culture, gender discrimination, ageism, and more. My guests will include entrepreneurs, corporate executives, and business owners. We are going to get down to what these women are really feeling. Expect vulnerability, openness, and relatability. But most importantly, expect to find your confidence. How important is mentorship? I think it's very important for personal development. When I examine my own life and think about this topic, my mentor was my mother. I watched her grow a business. I watched her lead in community activities. And I sought advice from her in my own life. So I was off to a great start, right? But then as I emerged into professional life, I didn't seek mentorship. It didn't occur to me that it was needed, but it was. And now that I think about it, it would have been nice to have a few mentors throughout my career to help me navigate some of the harder times, provide assurance that I was going in the right direction, or basically just to know I wasn't alone. So how do we place more attention on mentorship for women? How do we recognize these relationships and utilize them and then pay it forward to the next generation? Well, my guest today, Rita Ballas-Gordon, will share with us how having mentors has affected her life and why she believes serving as a mentor can help improve others. Be sure to listen through to the end of this episode so you can hear my two tips on mentorship. But first, here's more on Rita. Rita Ballas-Gordon, PhD, is the CEO of Munotherapeutics, a global preclinical stage biotech company discovering and developing disease-modifying therapies for neurodegenerative diseases. She is a director on the board of Collegium Pharmaceutical, a publicly traded company, and on the board of privately held Capsita Biotherapeutics and advises several biotech companies. Rita spent a decade in pharma in global senior leadership roles at Sanofi and Pfizer. Internationally known for her work on synaptic plasticity and CNS autoimmune disorders, Rita was Professor of Neurosciences at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, where she holds an appointment as adjunct professor. Rita is an elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Rita, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just so honored that you're here with me to have this conversation. Oh, Holly, it is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. And um, typically, I let my guests talk about how we met each other or how we know each other. But this episode and this conversation is really special to me because my mother has Alzheimer's dementia. And she was diagnosed about two years ago. And it was my first time to become familiar with the disease. And um, she's in memory care. And thank God she's still with us. But I was watching her decline and the doctors were like, this is it, you know, this is what to expect. Um, and I kept thinking, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to this. What else can I do? And so I started looking up companies that are working on how to slow 
or stop the progression of Alzheimer's disease. And I came across your company, Muta Therapeutics. I came across your your organization and um, I, I looked you up. I'm like, who's running this? Who can I connect with here? Who knows about this? Who can tell me about it? And we'll engage in a conversation. And so I, I found you on LinkedIn and I sent you a message cold out of the blue. You don't even know me. And I was like, this is where I'm at with my mom. I don't know what to do. Do you have any recommendations? And would you be open to a phone call? And you, Miss Rita, said yes. Like selflessly, you know, very heartfelt yes. And so we had a conversation, what, maybe in September? And you were so calming and you gave me resources and you gave me support and we've started a friendship since then. And I want to thank you for that because you didn't even know me. And you still were open to making that connection. And to me, it's such an important connection considering what she's going through. And now this um, relationship I've developed with you. And I have chills because it means something. Well, Holly, that, that is very kind of you to say. And I, I mean this in all sincerity that uh, it was my absolute pleasure to be helpful. And of course, it was also my pleasure to get to know you. And I hope this is the start of a, of a long and beautiful friendship. I am a big believer in paying it forward. And as I shared with you, I have been the beneficiary of good advice and help on this topic and many others in the course of my career. And I always felt as an expression of my gratitude to those people who helped me that I would pay it forward. And I hope that you too you know, take this yep. information, your experience, and are able to do the same. So I absolutely will. And you said that on our first call, you're like, I, I it's my goal to pay it forward to help other people. And so yeah. it's, it's part of who you are. And that's actually a perfect segue, because today's um, topic is mentorship. And we have not yet touched this topic in talking confidence in this podcast. So I know Rita has a lot to offer um, because she is such a natural mentor. And um, I really want the audience to learn more about you and your journey and how mentorship has been a part of your life. So will you tell us a little bit about yourself first? I'd be happy to. Thank you. So I am um, in my early 60s. I have been a scientist since I was a kid. At least I'd like to think I had the scientific bent when I was uh, just knee-high to a grasshopper and helping my mom in the kitchen as she baked. Um, she is an amazing baker. And I would ask her, like any annoying eight-year-old, you know, why are we doing that? Why are you adding the salt, you know, 30 minutes after you add the yeast to dough? And she would very patiently explain why. And very quickly got to the point where she could no longer provide the why answers. So, you know, went to the Encyclopedia Britannica in the living room and she would say, well, why don't you look that up? And Encyclopedia Britannica being the Google of the day. Um, And I would, and I have to say that learning how to ask the why question and look for the answer when someone couldn't provide it to me off the cuff was maybe one of the greatest lessons my mom taught me because I think being a lifelong learner is a privilege. Mm -hmm. um, And then using that is such a key part of being a scientist. So 
I started a scientific um, journey through through high school and college, of course, graduate school, postdoc training. Took a role as um, in academia as a assistant professor in the School of Medicine at Penn in the middle '90s, where I was working in a neuroscience department. I, I ended up doing um, being very interested in the brain, in particular how the brain develops and how our experiences shape brain connectivity. So that was the topic I and my lab, uh, which I kind of grew from scratch in those days, uh, ended up working on. And I have to say, loved every moment of executing the ideas about the work we were going to do and raising the funding and attracting and mentoring students to do the work, students and postdocs and medical students and fellows. And about Oh, maybe 15 years into my academic career, I had the good fortune of moving to very fancy new lab space. And the a couple of weeks after we moved, we had a big flood. It was just a, a serendipitous piece of bad luck. And I say bad luck in quotes because it turned out to be incredible good fortune for me. My lab was moved to a neurology floor um, next to the lab of a a clinician who was working on what at that time was a very mysterious autoimmune disorder of the brain that affected memory and behavior. And we became friendly um, and started to collaborate and work together for more than a decade to understand these disorders. The founding member um, of this class of diseases, which he discovered was called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. And it caused really profound changes in cognition and in behavior, but patients would recover with the right treatment. And I became interested for the first time in treatments for these kinds of brain diseases. And to do that effectively, even in an academic setting, I realized I didn't have the right credentials to pursue therapeutics. So I decided to do um, a sabbatical at a big pharma company. Um, I joined the neuroscience group at Pfizer, um, led by a colleague of mine by the name of Michael Ehlers, who was building the group from scratch. I built a neuroimmunology group there and then really enjoyed the work um, and ended up kind of rising through the ranks and leading a couple of different drug discovery portfolios, one in psychiatry and one in pain. And that led to a, a larger global role at a second pharma company, Sanofi. I was at Pfizer five years, Sanofi five years. And then at the end of my time at Sanofi, um, kind of beginning of the pandemic, middle of the pandemic, I had the opportunity to review some very interesting science in the realm of neurodegeneration um, relevant to the intersection between what I was doing in my academic work and at the first company I worked at and the second and kind of moving in in a different direction. And that became Muna Therapeutics through the work of a small team of very dedicated people and our scientific founders who I'm ha- I've had the privilege of working with for the last couple of years. And Muna works on novel therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and the related 
class of neurodegenerative disorders for which, as you now have come to know through your personal experience with Alzheimer's, have very few good therapeutic options for Mm. patients. So our goal is to change that and to bring new options to patients and to really, together with a, a team of very talented people in Europe and the US and scientific advisors all over the globe, really extend our understanding of what goes awry in these diseases and what are the low-hanging fruit points of intervention to enhance the quality of life for the millions of patients around the globe that really struggle with the sequelae of these disorders. Right. Well, I admire what you're doing. And there are so many patients with Alzheimer's, like you're saying, worldwide and the other diseases you're talking about. And I think it's important that a company like yours is putting yourself out front to create therapies to make their lives better. So thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. And that's certainly our goal. And we are a relatively early stage company, um, maybe about a year from testing our work in the clinic. And that is a really important step um, in particular for neurologic and neurodegenerative diseases for companies to get to that point. I hope along the way, we discover fundamentally new science and that we and others in the field build on that to provide many options for patients. It's really a challenge um, uh, with respect to all neurodegenerative diseases where there's room for a lot of companies, a lot of research, a lot of ideas, and we're very proud to be part of that community. Well, I think it's wonderful. I think, and, and I'm proud of you for doing this and that you're in the middle of this and leading it at the same time. So thank you. And actually, let's, let's talk about you being a scientist, sure. which I love. I love your endless curiosity. I love that you ask why, why, what's next. Tell us about your earlier years when you, when you did become a scientist and what that was like for you at the time. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, becoming a scientist in an era where women had already broken through uh, the so-called glass ceiling. There were many fellow women students who were in scientific training when I was in graduate school, when I was a postdoc. By the time I became an assistant professor, it was still very much of a male-dominated environment. There were it was only one other female faculty member in my department of 20, 25 faculty members. But I'm very happy to say that over the years since then, um, women have become very well represented in the ranks of academia and in industry, not as well represented in leadership roles as I think we would like to see for, of course, the very many obvious benefits of diversity of experiences and um, uh, thought process and and perspectives that are necessary in leadership roles. But because I joined the field at a time where there were successful senior women uh, and men, of course, I, I had the benefit of great mentorship from very early stages When I was a graduate student, uh, mentorship from successful, young, vibrant, committed um, women faculty, my fellow students, 
as I went through my training, um, a phenomenal mentor for my thesis work um, when I was in graduate school, someone who I think of in many ways as my scientific father. (laughs) And uh, I lost my own father and my scientific father, who they both passed away in the same year. And I'm sorry, I really very, very acutely felt um, both of their losses. But I have to say in gathering to remember their remarkable lives in their own arenas felt the impact that they both had, um, not only on me, but on many people. Um, and it was, it was kind of joyous to see that and experience that, um, just reflecting back on their lives. By the same token, I have to say, I also had mentors um, from whom I learned what not to do um, and how not to run a lab or how not to mentor people. And I learned over the years that it's not only important to have the good examples, the great examples and be lifted up by that, by them, but also to have the opposite because you learn a lot from, from those experiences as well. And I certainly have um, in my own career and those experiences, I think back to this theme of sort of paying it forward, I think have helped me become a a better mentor myself. And uh, I view it as something that I do because I think it's important but I derive so much enjoyment from seeing how, you know, a little bit of support or a little bit of a guiding hand or just a little bit of encouragement at the right moment can make a difference. It certainly made a difference in my own career. And I'm, I'm, it's a thrill to see in the small ways that you can um, see that help folks who are coming along behind you. Right. I agree. And I, I am glad that you had that type of support and that you were aware of it. I did not have a mentor. I did not. And I, I, I get, I'm interacting with more and more people now who can be my mentors. And I feel like I missed something. So when you were talking about being in science and being in a male dominated field and coming in, at what point did you realize you needed a mentor? Because I think a lot of people miss that step, regardless of the environment they're in. When can they recognize that they need a mentor and then how to find one? I would, I recognized it very early on. And the second realization that I had of how much not only did I need mentorship, but that you often don't find everything you need mentoring on in a single person. True. So it's really a question of if you are interested in people and their stories and they then become interested in you, it's a two-way street. And not only are you a good mentee, but you are a good mentor back either to that person or someone else. And so I I would say from the time I was in high school, I had the benefit of mentors outside of my own family, who I I was the recipient of a lot of love and support, which is a gift. But, um, you know, from counselors who um, helped me figure out the path to high quality education at a great school was the first person in my family to go to college. My parents didn't have this experience above and beyond knowing that college was important and that this is something they wanted for their children. But I got good advice and good mentorship then. And when I was in college, the same about developing a scientific career. Um, And then in graduate school, as I mentioned, for men and women alike, And I would say around that period, I would have been in my early 20s or so, was was when I I had a circle around me that was 
more intentional than serendipitous interactions and had people mentoring me for different things. Um, and sometimes it was a very natural um, outcome of just developing a friendship. Um, and also realized that the circle of people that you're going through these experiences with, in my case, fellow students or postdocs, were often incredibly um, rich sources of experience and insights. And like any um, pursuit, whether it's in your professional life or your personal life, you have to sort of sort out the advice that fits you. Yes. <laughs> the advice that you that resonates with you, the advice that you don't want to hear, but you kind of sense is important, you should pay attention to, and the advice that's well intended, but maybe doesn't apply. And that's a skill in its own right, kind of sifting through all of that. But I think um, core to being a scientist is having rich sources of data and learning how to deal with the data. And this is mm-hmm. a different kind of data, right? So, um, and then when I was a young faculty member, I was assigned a mentor who was great, but, you know, it wasn't the most natural of relationships. And it turned out not to be a big deal because I had all these other folks in my life. And um, I was recently, just a few days ago, at the Society for Neuroscience meeting, uh, an annual meeting that is held um, in the fall of every year. It's the first one that was held in person after the pandemic, or maybe the second one. The last one was maybe maybe hybrid. And I had the good fortune of my path crossing um, with those of a couple of mentors from my early scientific career. And it was just wonderful to be able to say thank you in person, you know, after uh, going through the last couple of years of, of COVID and reminisce a little bit about how far we've all come, you know, since those early days. So. Right. I love seeing those people because it's as if no time has ever passed. It's like... Yeah. It was however however many years ago you saw each other the last time. So I value that too. Me too. Yeah, me too. Okay, I have a question that that I did not have planned, but I want to ask it. What was the best bit of advice a mentor ever gave you? Two pieces. Actually, three pieces of advice, I would say. The first one, when I was in graduate school, Um, and a postdoc was to make sure that I had a scientific network of people who knew me and knew um, how I thought and my work and the questions I would ask separate from my very well-known advisors in the field to kind of practice stepping out from their, they were wonderful environments to do science in, but you know, Mm -hmm. People who are very well-known cast a big shadow, and it's important to sort of step outside of that and become known in your own right. Yes. And that early advice um, really was important. So when I would go to scientific meetings, I would make sure that I was meeting people and introducing myself and asking questions about their work. So they got to know who I was separate from the very talented people that I had the privilege of working with. The second piece of advice that I was given was to be mindful of the challenges of combining a professional life and a personal life. Mm. And while you can never predict the path that your two, you know, these two pursuits will will take and how they might collide, 
but to be mindful of marrying someone or being in a relationship with someone who understood Mm -hmm. what you wanted to get out of your professional life and what you wanted to get out of your personal life and supported both endeavors. In other words, that your goals were clear, um, as clear as they could be. Right. And I have to say the reflection I have on that part is that you have to be very flexible through your life because you might start out at point A and you end up at point Z and the path that you took to get there is not at all what you predicted. But no, happens all. I had the very good fortune of marrying someone who, being in a relationship and ending up marrying someone who was my biggest champion um, and who was a partner in every sense of the word, um, supporting my professional ambitions, but also supporting by rolling up his sleeves and being a great partner on the home front too, and uh, benefited from that good advice. Um, And then the third thing, when I went to pharma, the best piece of advice I was given was to always have a plan B. So always have a backup plan in case your plan A doesn't work out. And that turned out to be great advice. That is so true. (laughs) So true. So I would say those were the three touchstone pieces of advice I was given that really changed uh, my life for the better. I love what you're saying because every point could apply to anyone. Step out of the shadow, make sure your partner supports you. And then the last one, which was, I forgot already. Yeah, no, always have a plan B. Oh, yeah. Always have a plan B. Plan B, yeah. Um. Okay, I want to I, I want to take this in a different direction because we're talking about you and me, um, and our mentors. How do we pay it forward to the younger generations? This mentorship and make sure that they do the same thing, and that it, it is a natural progression for them also. Yeah, I th- I think um, one is really using the power of your network, whether it's a professional network or a personal one. Um, and I have to say that I've also benefited from mentors in my personal life, just fellow wives and moms and daughters and sisters, and you know, just the whole the whole nine yards there. Right. Um, but but having a network where People show up willing to give as well as willing to take um, advice or support or encouragement. And the best mentoring relationships I've had in my career are ones where it has been very much a two-way street, where you approach it by by showing up with your full self, willing to share your your joys and your, your sorrows and your victories and your challenges and you realize that you you have to be a good listener mm-hmm. to, to get the mentoring but you also have to be willing to put yourself out there and to give back and it's when you have this two-way street you have a really good mentoring relationship I think a lot of people have the unfortunate mistaken assumption that they only seek mentoring when they have a problem and then it's a one-way street. I have a problem. You have a potential solution. I need you to give me that solution. And that can work. Um, and, and people make that work. But I think you really tap into the full richness of mentoring when 
you develop this two-way relationship and you you share your your experiences in the hopes that you know it, you'll help each other and then down the road someone else that takes a lot of practice mm-hmm. and i think it was one really important thing we lost during the pandemic that connectedness personally we all spent so much time on zoom for for work-related purposes, or even connecting with family and friends that we couldn't see in person, that that extra step of of really investing in mentoring relationships on Zoom, I think didn't happen. And we all felt a little bit isolated. But now that we've come out of it, um, I think it's become a really rich source of encouragement and support as we navigate through what has been for many of us really uncertain times, like at every level, not just globally and nationally, but your family and finances and, you know, inflation and jobs and so many, you know, the political environment and polarization in society. And what do we do with social media? I mean, all of these really big and somewhat destabilizing, right? Concerns we have. Um, Very. I, I think we're kind of back to the richness of these relationships in person. Uh, now we have the bandwidth, a little bit more bandwidth to even do it by Zoom if we have to. But um, I think maintaining that network and maintaining those relationships takes a lot of intention. And showing younger folks that that's what it takes and that's what you can get out of it. If you contribute a little, you get a lot. Um, I think is one really important thing that that we... Uh, I hate to use the word senior. We more experienced folks. We're more experienced. Uh, can 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 provide um, younger generations. So. Right, right. Well, I think that is great modeling for the younger generation to sh- you know talk about the fifty fifty because that is important. You need to be able to pour into each other and about maintaining your network because everything now is so fleeting. Everything's so disposable. And it does take intention to keep those relationships going, but it's something that we can do and they can do too. And we can teach them how to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, that's wonderful advice. Wonderful advice. Um, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to know more about you or if they want to have you speak or maybe you need to be on somebody else's podcast too? Well, that's a great question. And I, I'm really, I hate to give this answer, but um, it is a practical one. And that is LinkedIn um, is, you know, the way to find people in a professional arena. I'm going to learn a little bit about them. I, I want to stress that connecting with someone on LinkedIn is not having a network or growing or maintaining a network. It's a step to um, identify those people um, that you might want to reach out to, or maybe even engineer your path crossing in person at a meeting or a cup of coffee if you're in their city and they have the opportunity. Um, so, so that is the easiest way to reach out to me with the caveat that it's sometimes hard to respond, you know, just respond to everybody sort of reaching out and to not mistake making that connection for um, building a network. It's a step, not the not the end result, and that it takes, you know, really um, a, a number of lines of communication and a, a period of time to really get to the good stuff, which is a, a real mentoring relationship. Yes, I agree with you. That could be a whole other podcast topic right there. Seriously, 
about LinkedIn and reaching out and connections, but it is, it is the most professional way, you know, to find somebody nowadays. Well, you have been lovely to have on today and I could go on and go on, go on because there's so much more to this. Um, So I'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. It would be my pleasure. And what a great conversation. It felt so natural and the time flew by. So thank you for that. It It did. Well, thank you for being here with me. Thanks, Rita. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, I wish I would have had more mentors in place throughout my professional life. But you know what? It's never too late. I think I may have found one in Rita. Here are my two tips for you today on mentorship. The first one is get one or get two. Identify women and men in your life that you admire and respect and you know will provide you the support and thoughtfulness that you need. It could be a longtime colleague, a friend from college, or a neighbor. Let them know that you consider them a mentor and ask them if you can lean on them for direction, advice, or just to lend an ear. Secondly, pay it forward. Make a concerted effort to mentor others. And you can do this by getting involved in your local community, like Dress for Success, maybe a veterans program or your local chamber just to get started. They are often seeking mentors. Or offer to be a mentor in your workplace. Let your upper level management know that you know that being a mentor will help others and help you grow as an employee and authentic person. Those are my parting words for you today. This is Holly Kaplan. Cheers until the next episode of Talking Confidence. Thank you, Talking Confidence listeners, for joining me today for this episode. If you would like to connect with me personally for confidence coaching or speaking events, you can reach me at hollykaplan.com. If you would like to buy my book, Surviving the Dick Click, A Girl's Guide to Surviving the Male-Dominated Corporate World, you can find your copy at amazon.com. Thanks. Thanks.